0: Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence Fixed Income Credit Currency and Commodity Strategists and Analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC Research Team.
1: Good morning, good morning. Today is Thursday, the 14th of October, and welcome to this month's Emerging Market Lens and Look-Through Podcast. I am your ever-endearing host, Damian Sassauer, and today we are joined by Mr. Alessio DeLongas, Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of Global Tactical Asset Allocation at Invesco. A real privilege to have you here, Alessio. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
0: Thank you, Damian. It's such a pleasure to join your podcast. I listen to it all the time. Really a pleasure.
1: <laughs> well, look, you know, This is going to be an absolutely fabulous podcast because we're going a little bit off script here. For our typical audience, you know, we tend to focus on, you know, the emerging markets specifically, but really we wanted a add a little bit of flavor here, and we wanted to go that much deeper, and we wanted to talk about the smart beta revolution, because, as you know, it is in full swing. Factor-based ETFs have already drawn in something on the order of $14 U.S. billion this year, a record haul that's lifted industry AUM to nearly $57 You know, for me and for our listeners, I wonder, Alessio, if you could describe your macro approach to tactical asset allocation. I mean, I think we're all aware... Of the various different factor styles being deployed in global equities, but how can we apply smart beta investment to fixed income NFX?
0: Yes, it's a it's a very interesting uh, subject, and I think there's really two parts to this, right? There is, um, as you mentioned, we um, we have a, a, a rigorous macro-driven approach to tactical asset allocation, which we also deploy to tactical factor rotation. And, and this really originated uh, in the equity world, right? So um, in the equity world, we have the traditional industry and academically accepted uh, factors commonly used, uh, the size premium, value, low volatility quality and momentum and we use this framework which we can describe later uh, to rotate among these factors these equity factors now when we transition to uh fixed income and currencies uh particularly um, in general but also then for emerging markets in fixed income what we find there's there's three primary uh, factors uh, that um, our fixed income colleagues have modeled and deployed um, over the years uh, namely uh, carry value and low volatility what do we what do we mean by those just a level set briefly uh, by carry we mean um, in, in in fixed income credit uh, by ca- the carry factor refers to bonds with the highest spreads Uh, with respect to the entire universe, sort of unconditional to credit quality or uh, sector um, classification. Value is more uh, nuanced. Value refers to uh, the bonds with the highest spreads, but conditional on uh, a universe of equivalent duration, sector classification, uh, and credit rating. So uh, the best value for the same fundamentals so to speak. And low volatility is a factor that has sort of merged over time, both low vol and quality characteristics. Our colleagues define low volatility as a blend of those bonds that have um, uh, superior credit quality and more stable uh, volatility, therefore lower duration. So we're really going into the lower end of the curve in, uh, in good quality, uh, in higher credit quality space. In, um, and what we find in fixed income with respect to factor rotation is that on a gross of transaction cost basis, so uh, in in, in, research, in a research setting, we find that uh, fixed income factors behave very much in line with equity factors with respect to their performance in each stage of the business cycle. So okay. carry and value, yeah, carry and value very uh, in fixed income, in credit, Uh, uh, these factors tend to outperform uh, during the recovery and expansion phase of the cycle when growth is accelerating and the low volatility slash quality fixed income factors outperform during the downturn of the cycle, so the slowdown and contraction. This is very much aligned with what we see in equities. Uh, uh, Finally, to conclude, uh, in currencies, um, uh, the, the primary three factors in the currency world are carry, value and momentum, Uh, and we find uh, that these factors um, perform uh, well, Uh, carry tends to act very much like credit, um, while value, really value has a different behavior, FX value has a different behavior in our opinion, whether we're talking about the G10 or the DEM world. But if I may actually go back to fixed income for a second, Uh, we talked about research setting. I forgot to mention what we find. uh, So on paper, the performance of factors is actually in line with expectations. But what we find in fixed income compared to equities is that the return dispersion between factors is less uh, wide. And then once you factor in this reduced opportunity set with um, higher transaction costs on average for fixed income, especially in high yield and in emerging markets, we find that on an on an implementation basis, factor rotation in fixed income is is uh, more difficult to do. Is um, the sure. is there, so to speak? But is but it's less. It's more difficult to keep it to harvest it uh, on a real time basis once you factor in transaction costs.
1: Interesting. Interesting. And that that makes absolute perfect sense, right? I mean, especially if you think about it in the low volatility, you know, kind of construct within fixed income. I mean, you're kicking out all the bonds with the longest duration, the widest spreads, you know, structurally speaking, they tend to be the least liquid, right? So, So from a rebalancing standpoint, I can see that, you know, a lot of your alpha probably kind of goes by the wayside. But, you know, I wonder if you could share with, you know, our listeners, where does EM reside within the smart beta construct. You know, in your estimation, what are those key factors that are driving, I mean, you already talked about, you know, the, 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 the FX and the fixed income factors, but as it relates specifically to emerging markets, you know, how do you, how are sophisticated investors allocating risk, you know, to EM but employing a smart beta approach? I mean, what, what are they using to ensure that they're gaining optimal exposure to the asset class?
0: So uh, I, again, I think here there are some interesting nuances between the different uh, in the implementation of smart beta strategies in the different asset classes. so in the equity world, it's pretty much a plug and play, a transition from the developed world. So mm-hmm. the five factors size, value, level, quality, and momentum uh, they can be defined in the same way so at the security level, uh, the performance in the different stages of the business cycle is very similar so size and value tend to outperform in in, during the upswing during the acceleration uh, phase of the cycle low volume quality outperform during the downturn and momentum Mm -hmm. tends to outperform in the uh, in the later stages of the upswing and later stages of the downswing so an expansion and a contraction now in em however what we need to do uh, in em equis is uh factoring those transaction costs, the higher transaction costs and the higher frictions in this market by, by being uh, more mindful of turnover. So there are some adjustments that we need to do when we transition from DM to EM. Now, in uh, fixed income and currencies, sophisticated, uh, there is, I think, even before going into the smart beta uh, aspect of things, I think in, in fixed income and currencies, it's important to reduce the asset class exposures, to decompose the overall asset class exposures in its building blocks from a macro factors or risk premium standpoint. So if you think about uh, EM fixed income, uh, there is really three uh, drivers. If you think about EM uh, hard currency debt, uh, you can really boil this down to a duration premium and a credit premium. And the drivers and the drivers of them uh, there are some, i using credit drivers obviously, but these are, this is largely a universe bearing a financial crisis in emerging markets. This is an asset class that is predominantly driven by dollar pricing, by the pricing of the US yield curve and credit premium in the US, namely high yield or let's say triple B investment grade. Those are the natural comparisons and the betas of the market, the driving forces of the market. Right, when you think right. about EM e- e- local debt, now the building blocks are slightly different. We have a duration aspect which is more locally priced um uh, the local yield curves, the local bond curves. The influence of treasuries is still there, but it's less pronounced because they these curves are priced locally so right right uh, a bit more idiosyncratic the e- 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 yeah
1: they 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 tend to track the u s treasury curve but not perfectly, yes
0: exactly exactly you have local central banks you have uh, different uh, fiscal policy cycles and then the biggest risk component in em local debt is uh, the currency piece so the yep. currency risk which is which is an indirect way it's the trans and it's a transformation of what was the credit premium in 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 em hard currency debt why because Uh, when you're talking about local denominated, local currency denominated bonds, default can happen through currency depreciation or future inflation. So that currency risk uh, has two, wears really two hats, right? In in hard times, in bad times, it's a channel to express that credit discount, that credit premium for bad policy making, for inflationary policies. But in normal times and for well-developed EM currencies, it, that currency return is really more, more of a cyclical story around EMFX valuations relative to the dollar if you're a dollar-based investor. Uh, I conclude by saying to, to the origin of your question that if you're a sophisticated investor, you have the ability to target these three, these three different exposures in your EM asset classes very precisely by, by separating those, those building blocks, duration, credit, and currency, you can manage them specifically by using derivatives such as CDX for credit, such as currency forwards for FX. And duration, you can even uh, adjust your duration exposure through derivatives in the US market, such as US dollar-based duration, right? right? Now, for less sophisticated investors, when you buy an asset class, you need to be aware that there are those three different risks. And so uh, you have less of an ability to disentangle them. So. Um, EM mandates, EM16 mandates, with plenty of latitude and flexibility with respect to the instruments used, can uh, so active management can really make a difference uh, in um, in that sense of the decomposition of this risk premium.
1: Absolutely. Identifying the forward beta regime, trying to get a handle on, you know, which underlying factors are going to drive it, and then selecting those strategies, those factor indices, so to speak, that are going to perform best in those environments. And I think that kind of takes me to my next question, which is, you know, given where we are in the world, you know, and given, you know, how factor strategies have performed historically, you know, which styles appear to be in favor today and why and i wonder if you could expand on that because you know again it's all about decomposing these returns and then recombining them in a smart beta fashion so you talked about you know rotating across different factor uh sorry different uh, uh factor based investment styles in sort of a in sort of a smart beta way you know i'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and you know if you took a Portfolio, let's call it of 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 global bonds, and you broke it into those carry value and low volatility factors, and then you you know recombine them. You know what 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 is what what is the market telling us today? Like where should we be? You know where should we be overweight or underweight,
0: and why? Uh, Yeah, great question. So year to date, um, through a smart beta lens in fixed in EM fixed income, what we see is uh, that the carry and value factors have outperformed. The market and the low volatility factor has underperformed, and this actually jives really well with the prevailing macroeconomic regime that we have been all year. Uh, we have been in an expansionary regime where growth globally has been above trend and has ac- continued to accelerate uh, broadly speaking over the course of the year and uh, and globally really. Now, from our framework, we see that still being the case today. We still expect to be in this expansionary regime over the next few months. However, it is feasible, it is highly likely that at some point into 2022, uh, the market will begin to discount the uh, renormalization of growth towards uh, trend uh, levels. So we are coming from very high outsized growth and a reversion to the mean, a reversion to trend growth is very likely. In that environment where growth is decelerating but still solidly above trend, we can expect more of a convergence in factor performance. And what that means is that uh, low volatility bonds, the convergence between carry value and low volatility bonds is more likely. There's gonna be less factor dispersion on average, that's what we see historically. Now, to the other part of your question, translating this all back to the traditional lens of fixed income. Here's the date, what we're seeing is compensation for the credit premium, so uh, going up the risk curve, has compensated investors. Yeah. Investors have been penalized for the duration premium. In other words, because of the sell-off in global bond yields, the, uh, the term premium component of EM fixed income has underperformed somewhat, not by a lot. Uh, but the credit premium has, uh, by and large, helped um, mitigate the returns in, in these asset classes.
1: Interesting. So really what we're calling for, I guess, is a return of the low vol strategy, I guess, in an environment where the economy is beginning to slow down from very, very high levels. Interesting. So interesting. Now, I wonder if you could tell our, you know, our listeners, you know, how do sophisticated institutional investors approach this space today? I mean, are you seeing them, you know, require, I mean, are they asking for individual factor-based indices and then, you know, um, 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 basically, looking to you know invest in them independently. Are they looking for some sort of diversified risk premia index, which does everything you're doing? It takes you know these these factors, it decomposes them, and then it recombines them in in a smart way. I mean, what 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 is the market asking for today, and what are the I guess what are the options available to them?
0: Great question. And the market is seeing quite a bit of a, a transformation over time. I would say, without a doubt, the predominant Uh, appetite is for multi-factor solutions. Um, That's true both in equity and fixed income. Mm -hmm. Uh, A multi-factor approach investors like the, uh, uh, investors who believe in factor investing like the idea of harvesting the low correlation and the diversification between these factors. This is true both in fixed income and equities. Now in equities, we actually see a very strong rising appetite for dynamic multi-factor solutions in other words within a multi-factor construct investors are increasingly recognizing the strong factor dispersion that happens between equities think about value versus quality or small caps versus large caps a very pronounced factor dispersion and they are willing to sacrifice that diversification to go into more concentration risk uh, by uh, concentrating portfolio exposure into a subset of factors in fixed income uh, less so, uh, as per what we said earlier, the return dispersion between factors is more muted, and so a diversified strategic approach to multi-factor is really uh, the most wanted option, uh, the most desirable option in fixed income. Uh, and then finally, in currencies, uh, we see the usual appetite for currency overlay solutions. right? Currency overlay yeah. solutions that are that are centered on managing currency risk and returns through a carry and value lens what i would say on that this is very interesting and the result of the change uh in in, in em market structure uh the performance of em carry uh, or g10 carry has really disappeared right for the last 10 years plus in the post gfc There is no dispersion, there is no yield differential really worth harvesting on a structural basis. So strategies that are more focused on value or that intelligently combine value and carry in effects are the ones that we see uh, attracting more interest.
1: Yeah, I think think for our listeners it's important to point out historically – the momentum factor in FX uh, investing tends to be a volatility dampener, right? It tends to be a sort of a, a it's, it's not going to give you the type of returns carrying value will, but it'll, it's will it got a lower vol, right? So it's going to smooth out your returns over time, and it tends to wind up being a, a larger allocation and sort of a, I guess, a, as you rightly point out, sort of a multi-factor fixed FX portfolio, right, based on, on what we're talking here today with carrying value kind of making up uh, the, the balance. I mean, historically, that's what we found anyway on our side, but, you know, I'm Wondering, you know, we talked a little bit about you know what investors are asking for. I'm curious, you know. It's a new paradigm here right i mean the pandemic has changed the world and you know we're seeing different levels of liquidity in different pockets of the market we're seeing um we're seeing things change and so what changes are you seeing on your side predominantly with regard to market structure and by that i mean the composition of investors you know and and the the types of asset classes that they're expanding into and from an em practitioner standpoint where does emerging markets kind of sit within the broader lens of smart beta investing? I mean, clearly, you know, it's sort of uh, it's, 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 it's a very small piece of the puzzle, so to speak, but, you know, it, it, it's, it's definitely an area, certainly on the fixed income side, where there is still considerably wider spreads and higher yields and more risk premium to be had. So I'm curious, you know, are, 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 is all that we're talking about here, you know, a smart beta approach, you know, is it finding its way to emerging markets and are investors responding to that?
0: i think uh the institutional world um that is uh that is more uh familiar with with factor investing is uh on the margin willing to entertain the idea of smart data in uh in, in em i think the in the retail world uh there is a bit of a lag and i think it's two two things not only from a a uh, uh, discipline, investment discipline standpoint, the concept of smart beta is something more familiar in equities to begin with, and in developed markets in particular, but we have also been in a over a decade period of emerging markets underperformance relative yes. to developed markets across all asset classes. And as you know, there is always an anchoring uh, from that, especially in the retail world, there is more driven by momentum rather than long-term valuations. Uh, so the combination of an asset class that has been out of favor with an investment style that is more nuanced and sophisticated has not bode well for for appetite of smart beta strategies in, in EM, right? And and by the way, uh, I think it's an important caveat to this conversation is that in the developed world, especially in equities, factor investing on average has struggled uh, a little yeah. bit. So there is a little bit of a, a headwind um to to overcome uh now this is less on the on the on the market structure but i think one one thing that is on the economic side that has stood out to me in this COVID 19 pandemic is that we have sort of seen in, in, in an indirect way em has suffered from that institutional weakness relative to developed markets in the way they have been able to uh deploy um uh the vaccine develop the vaccine uh control for the spread of the virus you know if you know it's interesting because if we look back at the last 18 months right if i told you that starting 18 months ago um, developed market equities would double in the value uh, <laughs> that that credit spreads were compress by multiple hundreds of, of basis points that the dollar would weaken and the commodity prices would rise by 50 percent without a doubt you and i would have assumed em em asset classes to outperform across yes. the board to outperform right. developed markets that has not happened because of this divergence right this local drag that we have seen on average in emerging markets in the handling of the pandemic the delayed response uh, and and i think that's where we are today we are at that inflection point where hopefully em actually on a go forward basis is the asset class that still has that return potential that has otherwise um, largely materialized in, in other parts of the world. Interesting.
1: Interesting. Well, I mean, you, you, you take me to my last question, I mean, which is effectively a little bit of a deviation from all that we talked about here. I mean, this COVID-19 pandemic is unlike anything we've ever witnessed, right? I mean, certainly in the modern era of capital markets. I'm wondering, you know, for our listeners, if you could just touch on some of the vulnerabilities that have been exposed by the episode, you know. And for me, you know, I'm curious, what are your biggest te- takeaways and what have you learned from it? I mean, I can tell you mine. I mean, for me, it's don't ever undermine the innovative nature of central banks to stimulate economies in new and unsound ways, right, when things get difficult. <laughs> so I'm curious from your perspective, you know, what, what has jumped out at you? What didn't you see coming by the, by, by the pandemic? And, and, again, what have you learned from it?
0: uh so some of the things that have changed is for example you know um in this recovery during the pandemic i think partially because of the headwinds that we described earlier uh the uh, the asset class has morphed has different characteristics um em seems to show far less sensitivity to commodity prices which have always been thought of as a major driver of their growth and uh and asset price performance. Uh, we have now been at a couple of years of, of complete decoupling between uh, commodity prices, no matter where you look, right? Industrial metals, precious metals, energy.
1: Commodity uh, currencies even, yes.
0: no, I'm with you. Commodity currencies, right? Exactly. So um, when you look at the equity world uh, also, the sensitivity of the EM equity universe seems to now seems to be more associated with with growth, with technology. So there is certainly a different composition in the makeup of growth and in the makeup of the equity universe in emerging markets, which I think affects, to your point, also the performance of EM currencies.
1: Fascinating. Well, thank you, Alessio, for sharing all your thoughts and views with us here today. And thank you to our audience of EM enthusiasts for your time and continued interest. Keep well, stay safe, and keep Moving forward, take good care.